Welcome to the ITAD Talk Podcast with your host, Jeff Bittner. So I'd like to introduce my guest this morning, and it's Daniel Lobanovsky, and he is the sales and ITAD at Terabit Systems. And Daniel has over a decade of purchasing and sales experience in the secondary market, specializing in end-user and broker sales for Arista and Juniper networking hardware. So I'd like to say welcome to you, and thanks for being on our uh, podcast. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And yeah, please excuse me if I don't reply quick enough because uh, this is officially the first podcast I've ever done. So okay. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you're very welcome. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got into the industry? Uh, sure. So um, myself, I was uh, grew up, born and raised in uh, San Francisco, California, and uh, went to uh, college over at USF and did my thing and jammed out to Japan for about six to eight years and um, eventually came back to the U.S. and had a degree in um, uh, economics. So I thought, oh, why don't I merge? At that time, I had a bit of a sales background. And uh, why don't I merge that with uh, economics and go into finance? And uh, got into finance, and that lasted until about 2008. I was on the sales desk mm. uh, for a company that basically did venture capital loans and um, heavy equipment leasing. And I think you remember 2008, yes. we had the collapse in the US. So <clears throat> I was looking for something else to do after the sales desk went from like six, five, four, three. Oh my gosh, eight. how scary. And uh, <laughs> it, it was, but it was you know, actually in retrospect, one of the best things that could happen to me. Hmm. So um, I was a little tired at that time of finance because I didn't feel I was selling anything tangible. That was for myself. So, um, you know, I basically would sell a product and move on and I wasn't developing any long-term relationships or anything like that. But I didn't even realize that at that time because I didn't even know what that meant. But I had a friend of a friend who was starting a business in IT network hardware. And I had heard about the industry when I lived in Santa Barbara. There was at the time um, it was called NHR, but it's curvature now and okay. it's bought by somebody else since. Um, but you buy and sell this network equipment gear <clears throat> and generally it turned into more of selling network equipment gear for them. But so I met up with this friend who started this company, uh, Terabit Systems named Brian Stadmiller. And, uh, he focused on off brands because it was at the time and it's even more so now like a crowded industry, but um at the time it was like cisco everybody did cisco so we focused on brocade um which was essentially foundry um ip ethernet hardware not their sand gear and brian had found a niche um with a lot of clients that he developed in the, in the netherlands and um, i said well i've worked in japan maybe i could develop some Japanese clients, which I did. And we also had a Japanese web page and everything wow. as well. I got a translator to work on that. So, um, so a quick but, question on that. So were you then mm -hmm. um, shipping back and forth internationally or mm -hmm. did, or did you guys set up an, like a satellite office over there? Nope. No satellite offices, just uh, phone calls in the evening. Um, you know, trying to impress uh, Japanese junk dealers with my, my language skills. And you know, I was I was ju just about to ask: Do you do you speak do you speak the language or, or a little bit? I Japanese? do. Um, 
I took Japanese in um, in college. I got a minor in it, and then I studied quite a bit extensively to the point where I could become like a technical translator um, for this department. I worked for JCB, which was the Japan Credit Bureau, mm -hmm. and um, I worked for their sales side in the U.S., and then I moved to Japan, and lo and behold, the guy who had been working for them for 10 years was like, yeah, I want to leave, and my manager in the U.S. put in a good word for me, and I got the job. And I didn't know much Japanese, but um, so, okay. I wouldn't say to the technical level, but yeah. So here's one more question. When you were living over there, did you end up dating some of the Japanese girls? I'm just curious. I, what, was not, huh? I was not only dating, but I was also married to a Japanese woman. Really? And that, that could be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind marriage. of curious. So, like, was she kind of <laughs> like the the – the traditional girl and kind of did the tea um, ceremonies and, and things like that or um not so much um i was young at the time i was 25 uh, she was 21 um getting out of school and uh i had met her through uh, an english teaching job that i had and it's it's this story if you talk to a foreigner who's who's taught in japan you'd probably hear a million times over mm. But um, the most interesting part about this time, too, is like, you know, pre-iPhone, pre-everything, like getting around Tokyo, it's like survive or die. And so I think <laughs> that really forces you into, you know, either getting a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or someone who's a native there. And you just you really enjoy the country a lot more, too, that way. But, yeah, so we made the um, uh, kind of quick decision uh to get married and that lasted only you know after uh, i think two and a half years it pretty much fell apart but i stayed in japan a little bit longer and then said it's it's time to come home gotcha okay and then and then from there you you moved to san francisco i did i moved back um my mom was uh in san francisco she had sold a house moved up to sonoma so i uh planted myself in Sonoma for a couple months till I found a job. And then I moved to Santa Barbara when that's when I got onto another sales position, which was uh, the sales desk at John Hancock. And, um, that, that was a fun job, but then eventually, uh, got my series, uh, six, then my 63, then my series seven and moved back to San Francisco. And that's where I ended up in the company right before I went into network hardware. And so that that's where you live currently is in San Francisco? Uh, San Rafael now, actually, okay. which is right north of San Francisco. So just on like as a baseline, what, what does it cost to rent a one or two bedroom place there now? Oh, wow. So San Francisco, when I came back, um, I guess this was around 2008 you could rent a one bedroom for thirteen hundred dollars. Oh, okay, that's um, not too bad. No, I guess not. But at the time, that was probably, I don't know. You know, you'd put half of the, what you earned into oh, rent, if not wow. a little bit less. So it was expensive, but um, yeah, I think you'd get a one bedroom around that rate. Then I had moved to another one bedroom apartment. I got that for fifteen hundred dollars. Came with parking. And I literally stayed there for about 12 years until we moved up over to uh, San Rafael. But I mean, now you're looking in San Francisco at like, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, when I left my apartment, I know it went up, the rent went from $1,500 to $3,250. Oh my gosh. It, it yeah, was for, for like a, a, a one bedroom? 
one bedroom in the western part of the city, which is like by Ocean Beach, less desirable, blah, blah, blah. But it was kind of catching on. So I think, um, yeah, and at the time we were looking for houses in San Rafael, so renting a house was like uh, 5,000 bucks a month. Yeah, around there, five to six. But yeah, so that's that's another one of the challenges in in the Bay Area is you always have to find – kind of the hustle that works for you and hardware has been one of those. So, so like for your staff, I mean, I know everybody's having trouble hiring people now. So, uh, like your technicians and stuff. So is it, mm-hmm. is it hard for them or you just have to pay, you know, huge premium to get people or, you know, that's really, really a good question because I'd say 10 years ago when we started the business, it was kind of like, okay, you know, everyone hangs on and does their thing. Um, but it would be much harder to get, I would say, younger talent now. Um, A, because I think we we're going to touch upon this too, but how did you get into networking equipment and why? Yes. And I don't know anybody. I have not yet met one person who is in this industry um by design okay so um that's always a really interesting thing um i've met people who have come out of like hardware sales but not necessarily who wanted to go into like used hardware sales or procurement so um it's just it's tough we we have people here in the bay area that i think have had established jobs earlier they didn't get into this industry and and work their way on up so to say like the techs had you know worked at cisco for a while maybe got tired of that environment wanted something more laid back um of course the pay and the benefits and everything are very different but um yeah i don't think san francisco or a very uh overhead heavy location is where you'd want to start a business like this today at all you know i'm curious too like when you're working with um you know corporate clients and since you do specialize in the networking gear because like for example we cater to the decommissioning of data center um, it assets for example and it's usually Mm -hmm. like where you go in and they kind of want you to take you know at least all the it gear or maybe they break it down into the IT gear, and then you've got you know the generators and flooring and so on. So I'm I'm just kind of right. curious, how, how does that relate to how you guys do business, and how are you kind of able to um, separate specific, uh, the, specifically the networking gear from the rest of the gear that that's coming out? We will just sell pieces off um, if we have a takeout of that that nature. That's either something we won't bid on or we'll have a partner who's in, interested in that. Um, a lot of times things like PDUs or whatever, I mean, they go for very, very little money. Right. And, and they're heavy. It was in, yeah, they're heavy, right? So you're not going to move those around that much, although there's a demand for them. Um, and I've met people who specialize in them, but they may live in Kansas um, <laughs> where they have a lot more space available to them. Um, but the funny thing is we also compete, you know, with companies that are based in the Midwest or, you know, somewhere in the Northeast. So, uh, the fact that we, and this is an interesting question too, because someone asked me at a trade show recently, it was like, well, why, why that hardware? Um, and I was like, good question. Didn't really think about it all that much, but 
it's it's essentially where the money is in networking. Mm. Um, the routing and the switching components are much higher dollar. They tend to hold their value a little bit longer, and um, you have to move less bulk of it than say something like um, you know servers or storage equipment. Um, and I think uh, just the expense of the shelf space in San Francisco kind of dictated what we what we do. So. So, yeah, so tell us a little bit more about um, when you kind of started working there and then the, the transition of the industry and kind of like, uh, has there been any changes and, you know, because you mentioned that you're kind of specializing in that type of equipment. Are there any kind of changes that, that are going on? Sure. Um, yeah, big time. So when we started, um, we focused on, uh, again, routing and switching hardware from Brocade, which at that time um, had just purchased Foundry and they had come out with this um, MLX or MLXC lineup. Um, and you started looking at these cars and you go, oh, wow, you know, 10. So everything was going from one gig to 10 gig. Then, you know, the next hop was currently what we're dealing with. That. 40, 40 was kind of there, but not completely there. The big one has been 100 gig, so we're helping a lot of clients, um, I guess, smaller to mid-sized companies who 100 gig was sort of out of the question or it wasn't even a need for them uh, a couple years ago, pretty much desperately needing it now, which sucks because um, everything slowed down with the supply chain and normally where, you know, they'd be paying um, a lot less for this kind of gear. They're actually paying slightly proportionately more for it now um, just because of the way everything's constrained. So, the, so, so a question on the gear, because um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of the uh, companies have their, their own software. Um, so mm -hmm. are you, uh, do you have like some certifications with the manufacturer to be able to do resets or is that not needed for that, that those types? No, we don't. I mean, you can't you can't charge for anything like software or something like that, obviously. Um, but yeah, we have techs that are proficient or versed in whatever operating system it is uh, for Juniper, it's Juno, Cisco, EOS, and there's similarities, um, I guess, more so with Arista and Cisco than there's with Juniper. But I'm I'm not. That's another thing for myself as a salesperson is I definitely try not to. Um, position myself as an engineer, someone who like deeply knows the te technical side of things. Um, but, um, well, sorry, I guess I lost track of that question there. No, no, I, I think that was, that, that was it. And then, yeah, you were talking about the, the transition going to the, uh, to, to yes. the, from the 40 gig to the hundred gig. So where, where's, as the hundred gig material kind of come out of like the telecoms, is that kind of where a lot of that stuff or, or more of the data centers or a little bit of both? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, previous, you know, cloud companies, telecoms, data centers. Uh, yeah, 100 gig. And now the thing is, is uh, people are looking to, to bump up and it's already out there. Uh, they're just having trouble sourcing the optics. So it's not completely usable. But um, 400 gig is out there from, you know, Juniper. Wow. Arista, Nokia, which had purchased Alcatel Lucent. Um, that's that's the next jump we're seeing. And we're not seeing any of our clients yet asking for 400 gig equipment. 
to us directly um, because it's so new that we have clients that sometimes will purchase new hardware and used hardware, sort of supplement um, their budget or save money by buying um, used hardware. That's definitely one of the sales pitches or approaches when you start talking to people. So, but uh, we couldn't even provide 400 gig if we were asked for it. So, so if you get a pretty good size load in, how long does it typically take for the uh, the inspection process and and the techs to go over it and to kind of wipe the operating mm -hmm. system and so on? That's, um, I mean, I'd say something like a pallet of a uh, a hundred switches can take you know a couple of techs. Uh, a, a week maybe okay gotcha but that's it doesn't take them a week of full time that's a week in between doing orders you know and getting right well it, it seems like well. when you're bringing in used gear there's always you know a lot of little things uh maybe there's small components that need to be replaced or a corner or there are things like that too as you're going through and so it, or maybe one of the systems gets hung and as you're trying to get into the operating system so it's yeah it's definitely kind of a, a, a whole process you know I was curious too what type of um, if do you have like any certifications um, that go along with with that industry like for example since we're an ITAD company also I mean we're doing R2 mm -hmm. and, and so on yeah none none for us okay. so years ago um, we brought up you know why not get certified and I don't there were some hurdles involved and we just didn't pursue it any further than that so um, I think another thing that's interesting about our industry is you look at it and when you say oh how much gear can you go through and what do you do there's like maybe three like you know 300 pound what do you ever call it? 800 pound gorillas in the room and mm -hmm. then there's just a bunch of us so you and by us i mean companies that do between you know five and ten million dollars in revenue a year um and those operations are generally no more than you know uh a few um well-seasoned sales people uh people who work in tech and then some people in who handle kind of like the back back office and managerial processes so um, it's, they're pretty tightly run ships. Yeah, that's, that's really important. I mean, especially, you know, since you're in an area where, uh, the labor is expensive and the cost of living, I mean, you really, that, that's important, uh, to be able yeah. to operate with an efficiency in, in your industry. We invite you to follow and subscribe to the ITAD Talk podcast your source for conversations with luminaries, visionaries, and innovators in the fields of business and technology. You can find the latest episode at itadtalk.com and on all your favorite podcast apps. And don't forget, the best way to support ITAD content is to rate and like the show on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or anywhere you might listen.